0: Great. So um, this morning is basically the last time I'm going to be preaching on Sunday morning as an elder in this church. Um, <laughs> thanks. Appreciate it. And I guess although this date had been in the diary for quite a long time, it hadn't really dawned on me the the reality of that and what that meant. So I think it's, for me, it's been a real privilege to be a father, a spiritual father in this community. To uh, help with the health of this church the growth of this church it's been an absolute privilege and I was thinking actually is this if this is the last time I preach as a father in this church what am I imparting what's what's kind of like my leaving gift and I was thinking oh God I need a a golden nugget of like godly wisdom I can pass and everyone goes away think ah yes that, that was that was a genius point I love that so that was kind of going from my head and then I looked at the content of what I'm actually preaching on. And we're going through the series of Exodus. And um, Howard's given me uh, four chapters to preach on in one morning. And they're not easy chapters. It's, we're going to be carrying on the story of Exodus, of Moses and Pharaoh. We're going to be looking at the plagues. And for those of you who know the story of the plagues, you know that there's massive kind of almost moral dilemmas that we read about. And we think, how does that work? How does it work with God and how he thinks of people? Um, And some of those things I was thinking, do I start to unpack some of those things? Why does God harden Pharaoh's heart? Why does God let these horrible plagues happen and really start to unpack those things? And that's where I was going with it. And I thought, "Ah, that's not going to serve me well. And I think, to be honest, I don't think that's the best thing I can do for you guys either. So I was thinking, what has served me well while I've been here in this church? What has shaped me and uh, really changed the way I think and the way I interact with others? And it took me back to something that I preached on back in 2012. So basically, I um, spoke on Tim Chester's book. He'd, he'd had a book called You Can Change. And in this book, he had, he's talked about four truths about God that uh, we've now come to know as the four Gs, because they all begin with G, which I'll introduce to you in a sec. And basically the concept, he he created this kind of, this discipleship tool, this way to kind of share the gospel, the good news of Jesus with each other, that you can uh, continue to pursue Jesus in your daily life through these four truths about God. If you're not following me, let let me explain. So, he said, Tim Chester said this about his book. He said, for years, I wondered if, if I'd ever overcome certain sins. And while I can't claim to have conquered sin, but no one ever can do, Here are discoveries that have led uh, led to change in my life and the lives of others. I'm one of those others. I can testify, actually, these 4Gs have changed my life. and, And for those of you who are new to 4Gs, I'm hoping this will be really transforming for you as well. I know what Howard's thinking right now because we talked about what I was going to talk about. I never mentioned this to him. Um, he's thinking, where does this fit into the story of Exodus? Well, what I'm hoping to do this morning is to take us through this epic story. This is a massive story that we go through. It's it's a famous story that's been told throughout the world and it's one that's been um, told in Hollywood, although that was a bit embarrassing. I don't know if you saw Exodus, uh, Gods and Kings, 2014. Less said about that, the better. Um, Yeah, so I'm going to take us through this epic story, but hopefully, as we go through it, We're going to pull out some of what this story reveals to us about who God is. And not only that, we want to work out how the revelation of who he is then brings key transformation to our lives. So that's what I'm hoping for this morning. So what are these four G's? So basically what Chester says is behind every sin that we make, every sin that we do, there's a lie that we believe about God. Um, And so he roots these lies into four main truths about God that we frequently fail to believe. So these four truths in in the context of the story of the plagues, of this great battle where God is revealing that he is the one true God, these are the truths that we need to believe today. So number one, he is the only God worthy of glory and worthy of being feared. Number two, he is the only God who is great and is in total control. Number three, he is the only God who is good And that can bring true satisfaction. And number four, he's the only God who shows grace. So we don't have to earn his love. So these four G's, God is glorious, God is great, God is good, God is gracious, are the four G's that I hope as we go away today, we'll think, wow, these truths of God can transform my life. And I I can recognise the lies that I've been believing and say, no more. What you will find is... Um, as I go through these four Gs, there's massive crossover, I'm going to be talking maybe about God being good and you're going to be thinking, hang on a sec, Andy, you're actually talking about God being gracious. Well actually that's completely fine because God is all four of these all the time and I'm just pulling out a few examples to show you kind of what these four Gs are about. So if they do cross over, that's no problem, let them cross over. Um, so, that, so just roll with it, okay? Okay, like I said, I've got four chapters. I'm not going to read all four chapters, otherwise that'll be the, pretty much the whole of this morning gone. I'm going to um, read through the bulk of chapter, Exodus chapter 7, and then I'm going to give you a bit of a summary over what happens uh, over the next eight plagues. When we get to the ninth plague, I'll read that again and number 10, tenth plague. Okay, so the context is Moses, uh, he grew up in Egypt and he was a Hebrew, but he got uh, called into the royal palace as a baby. Uh, He grew up, eventually left Egypt, and then God called him back to Egypt. And here he is coming back into Egypt, um, and God has told him to go and speak uh, to Pharaoh. So Exodus chapter 7, chapter 7 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out divisions from my people, uh, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when uh, when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of the Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned the wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret acts, each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding, he refuses to let my people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning and as he goes out to the river, confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says, and by this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish, will die, uh, the fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, Over the streams and canals, over the ponds and the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and the officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water from the river. From now on, I'm going to be jumping in bits and just kind of sharing bits so you get this story, because it's just going to take too long to read it all. So bear with me. So that was plague number one, the plague of blood. Plague number two, it says, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. Then I will team with frogs, so They'll come up into your palace and your bedroom and into your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. But again, what we find is the magicians did the same thing by the secret arts and, and Pharaoh's heart became hard again until eventually Pharaoh said to Moses, pray for me. Go to your God and pray. So Moses prayed and God uh, uh, took the frogs away, but then quickly Pharaoh changed his mind. He wouldn't let the people go. Then we got the plague of gnats. When uh, and the magicians tried to produce the gnats by the secret arts, they could not. So this is the first one that magicians couldn't copy. So they're able to do the snakes, they're able to do the blood, they were able to do the frogs, but they couldn't do the gnats. And it says, since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen, just as the Lord has said. Then we've got the plague of flies. And God says, on the day the flies come, I will do differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. So the Israelites lived in a part of Egypt called Goshen, and, and he's saying, I'll treat them differently in that land. The flies won't go there. And this, by this you will know that I am the Lord. I'll make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. Then we have the plague of the livestock. It says, the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses, donkeys and camels, and on your cattle, sheep and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt. So that no animal belonging to the Israelite will die. Then we had the plague of boils, which says the magicians could not stand before Moses because the boils were on them and it was so so torturous that they just couldn't come before Moses. And we've got the plague of hail. And just if you haven't realised and you don't know the story, after each one, Pharaoh kind of says, all right, all right, uh, you, you can go, and then quickly changes his mind. So that's why these plagues keep coming. The plague of hail. It says, give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have, you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hell will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. So this warning goes out. God forewarns people to say, look, there's a chance to save yourselves and save the livestock. But it says, those officials of Pharaoh who, were, who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and the livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. You think, come on, you've just had all these other plagues. How are you not seeing what's going to happen here? You've just had a warning. But they ignored it. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything grown in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was on the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. Then we have the plague of locusts. It says Pharaoh's officials said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go. So even his own officials are saying to Pharaoh, just let them go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realise that Egypt is ruined? And then we have the plague of darkness. So I'm going to read this from verse 21. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see or, uh, anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, you must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to our Lord, the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshipping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are going to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I'll never appear before you again. That's plague number nine. Plague number 10 is uh, the death of the firstborn of everyone in Egypt um, who doesn't follow what God calls them to do and put blood around the doorpost. Guys, I just want to quickly pray and just, I really want the Holy Spirit to come and do a work in us this morning to really change our hearts. Let's just ask him, Holy Spirit, we, we welcome you. Thank you for this wonderful story of uh, revelation of your power, of your grace, Lord, of your goodness. Lord, thank you, Lord, that you are great. Lord, thank you that you're glorious. Thank you, Lord, that you are so gracious to us, Lord, and your people, Lord. We pray this morning, as we unpack this text, as we look into your, your very word, God, that you would come and uh, reveal to us that you are the one to true God Lord, that there's none other, other that compares with you. I pray, come, Holy God. Amen. Amen. Okay, so the first of the G's, God is so glorious that we don't need to fear anyone else but Him. See, this um, this battle was an epic battle, as I was saying earlier. Like it's. This battle was probably bigger than most of the Hollywood uh, battle scenes that you can think of. You think of Lord of the Rings. You think of, I don't know, Braveheart. You think of these battle scenes. Actually, this one was the biggest uh, stage that you could have going. The, the nation of Egypt was the, uh, the biggest and the most powerful nation of the known world at that time. And they had these gods which were basically rulers of, uh, of this nation. They're the ones that the people worshipped and gave their lives to. And God's saying, actually, I'm going to take them all on. He takes on every god in the nation of Egypt, all of them, taking them all down. The power of all the gods of Egypt together, combined, did not match up to the one true God. But he didn't just take on the gods, he took on Pharaoh. Pharaoh, Pharaoh was a self proclaimed living deity. He considered himself a god. He said, I'm going to take you on as well. Doesn't matter if you're the leader of the most powerful nation in the world. Actually, I'm stronger than you, I'm more powerful than you, I'm the one in control. Then there was an even much bigger battle that was going on at the time that, that we're going to look at a little bit later on. It's a much bigger battle because it's the, most, the biggest cosmic battle for all creation. The battle against the fight against Satan and sin and death. And every single one of these, I'm going to tell you from the, off, from the offset, it's not a spoiler alert. Actually, God is victorious in winning every single one of these. And that is what we're going to celebrate this morning as we look into this passage. But what's, what's really helpful from God in, uh, in terms of what it says through Moses, is it makes it really clear why he's doing this. He says, he says a number of things throughout the text to say why he's doing these plagues what, and what it reveals about him. So there's six passages through, through the text um, which God says why he's doing it. So in Exodus 7, it says, By this you will know that I am the Lord. Chapter 8 says, So that you may know there is no other uh, one like the Lord our God. Chapter 8 says, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am the, in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. Chapter 9 says, so you may know that there's no one like me in all the earth, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Chapter 9 says, so you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Chapter 10 says, so that I may perform these signs of mine. Among them, that you may tell your children and your grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. So for, you can't see up here because it's far too small. But as you track these verses in chronological order, what you find is this, this wonderful escalation of God saying, Who I am. Yes. He, say, he starts off by just saying, He is the Lord. Then he says, There's no other God like me. He says... Then he goes on to say, he's the Lord in Egypt. And he says, he's the Lord of the whole earth. And then he says, he's the Lord of all history. He wants every generation to know that he is the Lord. So it's this wonderful escalation as the plagues increase. Actually, his, his um, plan and what he's revealing to, to Pharaoh and to the Israelites says, actually, it gets bigger and bigger. Right. Yeah. The other thing he says in all these verses is he says, that you may know. He repeats it again and again, that you may know. First of all, he wants Pharaoh to know. He wants the Egyptians to know that there's one true God in Egypt and that is the God of the Israelites, the Hebrew God. But he also wants the Israelites to know this. He wants the Israelites to understand that they they may know that he is the one true God. They've been living in this community for 400 years where all these idols are being worshipped, all these um, gods and goddesses are being worshipped. And he said, actually, no, all these are false. I am the one true God. Believe in me. But also, I believe he's saying this morning to every reader of this text that you may know that he is the one true God. You need to believe this this morning, that he is the one true God and he's speaking to all of you this morning, just as he spoke to Pharaoh and just as he spoke to the Israelites. You may know that this morning. So, how will, we know that, how will the Egyptians know that he is the one true God? What, what has God done through these plagues that is really revealing um, that he is the one true God? Well, I'd say that these plagues weren't random. It wasn't like God was sitting there thinking, I know he's got that spinner thinking, what should I do today? And uh, it falls on, today I'm going to give you some boils. Actually, no, that these, these plagues were specific, specifically targeting the idols and the gods and goddesses that the Egyptians were worshipping to say, actually, that God isn't powerful. I'm the one who's got power. So in Exodus 12:12, 12, 12, it says, the Lord promised, I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. And in Numbers 33, four, Moses tells us that through these plagues, the Lord has brought judgment on their gods. So this is a clear demonstration of I'm judging the gods of Egypt, and they're coming out short. They're not gods of power, they're not gods of salvation, they're not gods worthy of worship. Let me give you some examples. The first uh, plague, the plague of blood in the Nile. Actually, Egyptians worshiped a god called Happy. He was the river god. And he, they worshipped him because he brings life and none can live without him. Suddenly, all this water turns to blood and this blood does not bring life anymore. This, none can, uh, are able to seek life from the river because it's not bringing him, bringing the life. So God is saying, I am the God of this river. I'm in charge. I can, I can bring life out this river if I want to or I can stop the life coming out this river. Not this God happy that you worship. Next one is the plague of frogs. I'm not going to go for all, I'm just going to give you a few examples. They worshipped this goddess Hecate. And the goddess Hecate had a frog-like head. head. Not a pretty lady, but (laughs) God was saying, he is the true lord of the frogs. He controls the frogs, not this goddess. The ninth plague exposed the weakness of the sun god, Amun-Ra, Actually, he was unable to control the sun because actually God took the sun away so that darkness came over for three days and three nights. This God had no power. And all the, all the plagues, you can re- recognise actually the gods that were then defeated in, in the plagues that came. And you can go away and read about this. It. It's just, just such a great read thinking, yeah, God, you are powerful. But God is all about his own glory. It says in the Bible, it says that he's not willing to share his glory with another. Why? Because he is the only one worthy of it. He deserves it. And because he is glorious, he is the only one worthy to be feared. Pharaoh didn't fear God. And that was the issue with the story that we read. In Exodus 5, it says that Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And I will not let Israel go. You see, we obey when we recognise a higher authority. Pharaoh didn't recognise the highest authority in this situation. He thought he was the highest authority. He thought he was the one who could speak and everyone does what he says. And that's what he's used to. He knows the chain of command. Actually, who is this Hebrew, this uh, man to represent the slaves in his country, to come to him and say, the God of these slaves can speak and command something from this living deity, the Egyptian pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't recognise the authority that was being spoken to him. So regardless of whether pharaoh acknowledged it or not, all glory belongs to God. And that is just as true for us today. You see, for all of us, we desire the approval from others. And it's more commonly known, um, maybe, in, I don't know, just in Christian circles or wider, as the fear of man. Actually, the fear of man that, that um, just ties us back, holds us back. We fear others instead of fearing God. How does that look in our lives? Well, it generally comes out in two ways. On one hand, we want others to live in fear of us. A bit like Pharaoh I think we, we, we sometimes can become very defensive very quickly. Someone comes to us with a challenge and say, hang on a sec, Andy. You realise you did it and you're on the defence straight away because you don't want someone to speak um, and say bad things about you. You're, you're, you're worried about that. Um, someone trying to bring you down. You're thinking, how dare they? How dare they do that? On the flip side, you live in total fear of man, constantly worrying about what people are going to think of you, constantly worrying about gossip, constantly worrying about Actually, people say, say bad things about me and instead of it making you hard, it makes you timid, it makes you shy, it makes you fear them, you run away and hide. So the answer to the fear of man is the fear of God. The loving God, he's, he's worthy of our fear, not in a fear of sense of um, he's all powerful and he's ready to smite you down, but this fear of respect. Like a loving father, you think, actually, I've, I fear my, my loving father. Because I don't want uh, to go against him. I don't want to upset him. I want to please him. It's that fear, respectful fear. So, to fear God, we need to have a big view of God. Yes. To fear God is to respect, worship and trust and submit to him. It's the proper response to his glory, his holiness, his power, his love, his goodness and his wrath. In Proverbs it says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So there's safety in God, but when you're, when you're fearful of man and that's, that's how you live your life, then actually there's a snare ready to, to trap you because you're constantly trying to second guess everyone. Ed Welsh, in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, says this about the fear of man. Fear of man has many symptoms. Suspectedly lead to... It makes you susceptible to peer pressure. It makes you needing something from a spouse. A concern with self-esteem. Being overly committed because we can't say no. Fear of being exposed. Small lies to make ourselves look good. People make us jealous, angry, depressed or anxious. Avoiding people. uh, Avoiding people. Comparing ourselves with others. And the fear of evangelism. So again and again... God gave Pharaoh the chances to submit to him. Pharaoh instead said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? He learned the hard way that only total submission could bring satisfaction to his life. So maybe some questions you want to think about this morning are, what areas of your life do you wrestle with God in submission for? Where do you want to um, have that control when you think, actually, God, I want to trust you, I want to fear you alone. And whose glory are you after? God's? Your own? Or someone else's? Whose glory are you chasing your decision making in your day to day? Actually, the only way we can experience joy in our lives is by saying, God, you are glorious and you're the only one to be feared. Okay, number two. God is great that we don't need to be in control. But you can trust that he is. So Pharaoh believes that he is in control in this story. No one dares to challenge him. It's a status quo that's just been built up over generations in the, in the uh, Egyptian nation. And then this 80-year-old, probably this small, frail man, comes up to him, representing the, the slaves in Egypt, and tells him, hang on a sec, Pharaoh, you're not in control. And then what happens? God deploys all of creation... Land, sea, and sky. He mobilizes them against Pharaoh, saying, Actually, Pharaoh, I am in control here. Take this. The plague showed him who was in control. The problem for, for Pharaoh, though, was that in admitting that God was in total control, was actually admitting that he had none. It was saying, God is in total control. Me, as Pharaoh, I'm only here because God has allowed me to sit on this throne. It was a massive identity issue for Pharaoh. He built himself, he built himself uh, a, a, on a base of a lie, and one that he wasn't willing to admit just yet. This matter was slightly confused by the fact that his, the people that he had as counsel around him—these magicians, priests, kind of guys—were confusing the matter by trying to mimic some of the things that God was doing. So they turned staffs into snakes; they turned water into blood. And they made frogs appear, but what they actually did—and the only thing they actually did—was compound the problem rather than helping the problem. And just a quick side point: I, it's not—I'm not, not going to break down into how they were able to do this. Um, that's something you can go away and read about if you want. But actually, the Bible, including the New Testament, uh, is very, very happily acknowledges that there's spirits in the world that are able to perform miracles. Even the devil himself performs miracles to trap people into false worship of other gods. So it's it's acknowledged that it's there. So this is what's going on here. So the magicians and the priests, what they're saying was they actually make the problem worse. Every single time they do something, they're not helping the problem, they're making it worse. So think about it. If you're in the palace and there's a, a spitting cobra ready to bite, why would you want 10 spitting cobras ready to bite? It doesn't help the situation. If you're in a country where all the water is not drinkable because it's turned into blood, why would you want fresh water suddenly to be turned into blood? It doesn't make sense. If you're in a country filled with frogs, that you go to bed at night and there's frogs in your bed, that you can't cook because of, there's frogs in your oven, there's frogs in your pans, why would you want more frogs? That's all they're doing, they're making the problem worse. You think, how stupid. If these priests really had power, if these magicians really had power, what they would be doing is they would be reversing what God had done. They would have turned blood back into water, because that would have been good news for Egypt. Actually, we now have water. This God is nothing, because we have power here. They would have shepherded the frogs back into the river. But instead, they make things worse. They have power, but the only power they have is to amaze and to destroy So Pharaoh found comfort in the lie that he could do what God could, even if it meant more death and destruction to himself and his people. Tellingly, though, quite interesting, you read straight after that the magicians, brings, uh, the magicians were able to bring frogs uh, out of nowhere. Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron and he begs them to pray, to, to the god Yahweh, to say, take these frogs away. So he must have seen some of the stupidity of what was going on with these magicians doing exactly the same thing. It was <laughs> I think it's great. I think it's like, I just think when you've got uh, someone who's this high leader who thinks they're all powerful and all in control, suddenly the people around him, he's, he's not willing to admit it publicly, but he is saying, actually, I want you to pray to take these people away because not even my magicians can do that. So... What's interesting about um, Pharaoh asking Moses to pray is he's starting to realise that the God Yahweh is the Lord. So Yahweh is the name that, if I, I didn't explain for some of you who don't know, uh, Yahweh is the name that the Hebrews or the Israelites, interchangeably what we call them, um, calls God. It means I am. It's the name for him. So he, in him in Pharaoh asking Moses to pray, he's admitting, saying actually Yahweh is the Lord. But knowledge is not faith. We can know God, but it doesn't mean we trust God. So we can recognise him as our saviour, and I think that's something we find in our culture. We have people who, who recognise Jesus as saviour, probably even in this community here, people who recognise Jesus as saviour, but not as king not as Lord. We're happy with the thought of, oh yeah, God loves me. He, w- he wants to save me. He's come to take away my sins. But then to then bow the knee and say, Jesus, you are king of my life. You are Lord of my life. Is a completely different scenario. One that Pharaoh wasn't willing to admit. He wasn't willing to bow the knee. He wasn't willing to submit. Because actually, if he was going to submit, it would cost him financially. It would require him to acknowledge that he was wrong religiously and politically. And to do that publicly would be... a th- to let his kingdom fall away in front of his eyes. So his pride was stopping him from bowing the knee before God. And you know what, we're, we're fairly similar with, with Pharaoh to some regards. We, as like every other person in this world, desires control in some form or another. And it tends to work out in two ways. We can fear being out of control. For us, control is everything and that might look like we want to plan everything, we want to be, we, uh, we avoid risks because we think actually we, we take a risky choice and we don't know how it's going to work out. So we want to play it safe all the time. We quickly become frustrated and angry and impatient with other people because they're not working to our plan. We want to be in control. On the flip side, we, we can be in fear because we acknowledge that our lives are so out of control. And how does that work out? It can work out in the sense that we can, we can just hate our lives. We can just hate waking up in the morning and think, oh, not another day. My life is out of control. I've got no control of what's going on. It's just one thing after the next. And we can just feel down all the time. I tell you what, God is the answer. God is the answer. He is the one true God that is uh, so great that we don't need to be in control, but we can trust him, that he is. Number three, God is good, that we don't have to look anywhere but to him to feel satisfied. We look at the pictures, or I don't know, who here has been to Egypt? Okay, a few people. So you've seen the pyramids, you've seen the, the great um, sphinx and the temples that they're built, and you can see that the Egyptians were extremely wealthy people. Their rulers had money and finances. This was probably the most wealthy nation on earth at the time, of the known world anyway. So these Egyptian rulers, the hierarchy in this kingdom, were living in today's equivalent of the multi-millionaire lifestyle. That is the kind of lifestyle they were living. You look at the Egyptian tombs that have been discovered, and what happens is these Egyptian rulers were buried with their treasures. Their desire is to take these treasures into the afterlife with them. Sadly, they couldn't do it. Well, I don't know about sadly, because actually it's a benefit to us British people, because they're in a load of our museums now. So actually... <laughs> The, yeah, they thought they could take their riches with them into the afterlife, but they just couldn't. And what's great about Moses is, as a, as a child, he had it all. Actually, he was hand picked out of the water, which Howard preached on the other week. He was picked out of the water. He was a Hebrew child, but he was picked up by um, the, the, the daughter of Pharaoh, and he was taken into the royal palace. He was given everything he needed. He had it all. He had this multi millionaire lifestyle. And what did he do? He gave it all up, choosing to be one with the Hebrew slaves instead. Yes. He recognized that Christ was better than all the treasures in Egypt, in all the treasures that this world could offer. Why? Because he was looking ahead towards, towards the reward that was coming his way in eternity. He realized that what God had offered in eternity was better by far than anything that this life could offer. Pharaoh knew that slave labour, the slave labour of 600,000 people, had made him rich. This was a massive workforce. This workforce that he could just say a word and they would obey his command. Letting them go was saying goodbye wealth, goodbye power, goodbye to Everything my family over generations has established it was saying goodbye to all of that. He wasn't ready to say that God is good and, that, and he gives me everything I need. He wasn't satisfied in the goodness of God. He was, he was trying to be satisfied in the riches of what his wealth could give him. So for us, I think we can desire something more from life than what God gives us. And again, it can work out in two different ways. It can work out in one sense. You know what? Life feels good. And this is probably a case for um, a whole number of people in Cheltenham. When we look out in Cheltenham, they look at their lives and think, yeah, life's all right. I've got, got a nice house, have got family, I've got, got nice holidays. And what they f- end up doing is they're finding satisfaction in creating things rather than creating themselves. The reality is they're constantly looking for their next holiday. Okay, I need my next holiday. Where am I going to go? I need to go somewhere new. They need to build that extension. They need to get that next career, up the next career ladder. There's always that more, but, that, but life does feel good. On the flip side, life feels terrible. Desperately searching for something good to give your life meaning. You might be going from one partner to the next. One new experience to the next, hoping to find fulfilment in something. You might just feel that emptiness, searching for um, some answer at the bottom of a bottle, and drugs, and sex. You see, to choose to follow Christ is to lay your lives down, recognising that the goodness of God is more fulfilling and satisfying than anything the world can offer. Yeah. It looks like a sacrifice, but it's only when we view it in the short term. Actually, you look at the long term, like Moses... He saw the reward that was coming his way. He thought, that's the greater treasure that I want. Not anything that this earth can, this earth can uh, provide me. He saw that God was good and actually could be fully satisfied in him. So Tim Chester says this. He says, every time you look elsewhere to be satisfied, you commit adultery. Even our good works can be idolatrous acts. If we don't delight in God for his own sake, finding him beautiful and glorious in our eyes then we'll serve him for, for what we get in return. Mm. Reputation, security, escape from hell. In so doing, we reveal that our greatest love is our reputation, our security, our self-preservation, ultimately ourselves. Yeah, it's, it's easy to think of obedience as the price we pay for he- entry into heaven. Be, it would be better for us, we suppose, to be living for pleasure. But as Christians, we have to live for God. But the life of obedience is not the bad or sad life, it's the good life. Life with God and for God is the best life you can live. Change is about enjoying the freedom from sin and the delight in God that God gives to us through Jesus. Guys, we can experience great delight in our God. Like nothing that this world can offer. Like no holiday, like no career like no relationship, actually what God promises to offer in who he is, is total satisfaction. And he promises us this great reward that we have to look forward to in eternity. Okay, number four, God is so gracious that we don't have to prove ourselves to him. The story is full of examples of God's grace and mercy, which is ironic, because I think when most people read the story, they think this is all about God's judgment. Yes, it is about God's judgment, but it's just as much about God's grace. See, God takes away every plague. Pharaoh repeatedly asks Moses to pray to God Yahweh, to remove the plagues, and and Yahweh does. You see, this is mercy. This is mercy that God is showing. Because pure judgment, if we really thought that this was pure judgment in and of itself, then he would have destroyed Egypt like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. But God wants the Egyptians to know that the God of the Israelites is both powerful, just, but also merciful. So, it is Yahweh, not the Egyptian gods of Pharaoh's public works that bring relief, and Pharaoh knows it. Here's some of the examples of the grace that are through the plagues. Seven of the ten plagues come with a warning. God's saying, look, here's a warning. You can, you can, save, you can stop this, you can get out. When when he turned the Nile to blood, actually it says all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water from the river. Actually, God still provided a life source, even though most of the water turned to blood. That's the mercy and grace of God. The hail, it says the flax and the barley were destroyed since the barley was in ear and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripened later. So he left harvest. There, There was still food to eat. Beyond the hail. The darkness. Three days he gave to seriously consider. Actually, are they still going to say no to the God of grace and mercy? Three days before the worst of the plagues was about to come. He says, please repent. I'm giving you time to sit in darkness. That says there were total darkness covered to Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. They had three days to think and talk, and to decide how they were going to respond. God was being graceful and merciful to them, to come, respond to me. But out of all the stories of grace in this story, the one that I love the most is this one. It says, God makes it clear the reason why I brought um, the place to Egypt was that they may know that he is the Lord. I said that at the start. This was an act of divine grace that God chose to break in on the nation that rejected him as being the one true God. They'd done nothing to deserve God coming and intervening and to, and to experience his grace. But what's amazing is what we read in Exodus 12, verse 37 and 38, it says this. The Isra- so this was after the Israelites were finally allowed to leave the nation of Egypt. They were, they were going off into the wilderness, it says this. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children, Then it says this, listen, many other people went with them and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. So who are these many other people? Actually, the only people we read about in the story are the Israelites and the Egyptians. Many Egyptians joined the Israelites. They've recognised the grace and the mercy of God, the God of one true power and glory who deserved worship and they said, we are going to go with you because he is worthy of our lives. He is worthy of laying down everything for him. God's grace had worked through the Egyptian nation, calling many into God's kingdom. They turned their backs on their families, their community, their homes, their belongings, their leaders, their gods, their um, ancestral heritage. that had been passed down from one generation to the next. They gave up everything to follow the God of the Israelites. They gave up everything to lay down their lives Because I've seen a greater reward. And that's what Christ calls us to do. To lay down our lives. To follow him. To give up the things that hold us back in this life. Our families, our communities, our homes, our belongings, our our leaders, our gods. Actually he says lay it all down for me. Because what I offer is much greater. So how does it work out? God being gracious in our lives Well, we desire all of us desire to perform to own favour. And again, two responses. One, we can respond in a way that says, I'm good enough. I'm alright. I don't need God's mercy and grace. What does that look like? Well it looks like actually a lack of repentance. You're finding you don't go to God and repent regularly because actually you feel you're okay. You don't you don't pray regularly because you don't feel you need God because actually you you're, you're fairly self-sufficient no, actually oh god I'm doing all right you can become quite moralistic thinking yeah I'm I'm pretty good I know I know what's right and wrong you can be proud of success and you can envy other people's success you can make others feel guilty on the flip side you can respond by saying actually I'm too bad to deserve god's mercy and grace that can look like avoiding church Avoiding seeing other Christians because you think, oh, I can't, I, can't be, I can't be seen by them. I'm too bad. You don't celebrate God's goodness in your life. Because all you're doing is constantly reminding yourself, oh, I did that. Oh, I did this again. I said I wasn't going to do that again. I've done it. And so you, you're, the, the tape that's going around in your head is, I'm not worthy. You are worthy, not because of who you are, but much like the Egyptians, they've done Nothing. They'd done nothing to deserve the grace and mercy of God, but God called them out that nation and said, come and join my nation. That's what he's doing to us this morning, saying, come out of that old life, come into this new life that I've given you in the promised land. What's, I'm just going to finish on this point. God's judgment came down on Egypt through the plagues, but so did his grace. And the plagues were a shadow of what was to come. You see, the three hours of darkness... Uh, sorry, the three days of darkness that they experience, mirrors, the three hours that cr- uh, Christ experienced when he was on the cross. At the, the, when Jesus went to the cross, the Bible clearly tells us the sun went dark for three hours. It's that mirror effect going on. And what happened following the darkness? Well, in the plagues, the firstborn son died following the darkness. And actually, we see on the cross, the son of God died at the cross. But while this judgment was going on during the plagues and the darkness, it says during the plague of darkness, um, the only place of safety was in Goshen, the home of the Israelites. It says all the Israelites had light in places where they lived. So the only place of safety that we can experience to avoid God's judgment is being under his protection, in his, under his kingdom, under his rule. They were protected by, this, by the God. See, at the cross... Jesus took the full force of the plagues upon himself. The judgment of God that will fall on all who are outside of Goshen, on all who, fall out, uh, on, who will fall on all who are outside of his kingdom. The judgment of God will come. But he says, actually, I've given you the escape route. The cross is the escape route. It's, it's where there's the safety, where there's protection. We've seen, we saw the judgment and salvation in the plagues. And now, by the grace of God, we've seen judgment and salvation in the cross and resurrection of God's own Son. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk